This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? Doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. Now that we have some idea of what the tax laws are going to be, it's it's uh, taken the temperature down quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. I feel like we this we we've had these like waves of feeling right right before when the first proposal came out it's like oh my gosh that that set of panic we got to get things mm-hmm. going right away we thought they were going to pass something right away they they could have then it kind of died down for a little bit and then we saw the uh congress starting to put their own deadlines in place so like this last mm-hmm. week they were going to vote it's oh gosh okay game week again here we go and now we finally got this new plan it's like oh well this is going to be a little bit different now maybe we can enjoy the weekend yeah exactly <laughs> That's really the difference. It's like I don't I don't have the same level of urgency on a bunch of things that are on my desk right now. So I still want to get them all done. I just don't Mm -hmm. have to get them done like tomorrow. Yeah. that's nicer. Exactly. Now we could yeah. finally do it on like the attorney's timeline, like our preferred timeline, which is right. <laughs> thoughtfully thinking through all of this, taking our time. N- nothing's getting rushed. It's uh-huh. a lot nicer. Thank you, Congress. Thank you. Yes. Wonderful holiday present. Yeah. Once in a while, they, they throw a bone out there. So this was one <laughs> of them. It's really funny because we've been talking a lot with people about all the different fun little techniques that were going to go away um, that we know and love. And now we know pretty much all of those are sticking around. So we get to continue using them. I'm kind of excited. Mm-hmm. I had a few, as you know, I had a few that I was thinking that we'd done in the past that I was thinking, oh, man, we got to go back and like restructure a lot of this stuff. And now I'm thinking maybe we don't have to do that until <laughs> they decide that they really want to like redredge up the stuff that they were proposing earlier and actually make it the law who knows yeah who knows it's it's not over till it's over right (laughs) no never is well um considering that congress has changed their minds and the winds are blowing in different directions then i thought maybe today we would talk about something that has nothing to do with taxes Mm -hmm. isn't that refreshing so i didn't think there'd be anybody better to do that with than carolyn McClanahan, Carolyn is a md and cfp and i promise those two things do not cancel each other out uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. So, uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. So, since I would never do it proper justice, why don't you at least give us like your 30,000 foot CV? Oh, goodness. So, I started out as a physician. I um, did emergency medicine and family medicine, was on faculty at University of Florida. And my husband and I tried to find a financial planner back in the late 90s. We were in our um, our mid-30s at that point and had come into some money and had done well in the market because everybody did well in the market then. And when we looked for financial planners, they were all salespeople. They weren't real financial planners. So I went back to school for fun, fell in love with it. I got my CFP, opened my own firm in 2004, and it's a holistic financial planning firm. We we are legal fiduciaries. We don't sell anything. And um, through that time, I realized how many intersections occur between health and finance. And 
I love teaching that I was on faculty, remember, and uh, I started putting together fun little talks on all the different like elder planning as as far as um, chronic illness planning, healthcare reform. You guys talk about Congress. I've worked with Congress for many years um, in health policy issues because I got involved in that through the intersections. And so now I write for a number of publications, Barron's, Forbes, advisor perspectives, and I speak at a bunch of conferences, but pre-COVID, it was a lot more. Um, COVID killed things for a while, and now I'm starting to pick back up, but we'll never. I was doing 20 to 30 events a year, and that's too much. So um, so still have uh, my practice is um, there are four of us who are planners, and um, we all work together as a team. So a, a great crew. We take care of 100 client families, and um, that's that's my life. Very nice. Well, let me get, let me uh jump back topically then because you met you mentioned kind of getting into the industry in in early 2000s sounds like getting mm -hmm. exposed to the industry in in the 90s yep. do you think you know from that point till now say something like 15 years the industry itself has changed in terms of the salesmanship and what you were experiencing when you were first interacting with it oh absolutely um, i became a member of napfa which is the national organization of personal financial advisors. There were a small group of true fee-only fiduciaries who did comprehensive financial planning. And, and that's really what people need. You know, I think back then when people thought of a financial planner, it was just investment management. And thank goodness because of the press and because of people doing real financial planning like me and many others, our numbers have begun to snowball. And so now more people are realizing the value of financial planning and investment management has become more commoditized, which is a good thing because, you know, people think they can beat the market. And in reality, we know if they do, they're lucky. It's not because they're it's exceptionally smart or whatever. And um, and so, yeah, it's changed a lot. We still have a long way to go. Still a lot of salespeople out there. A lot of people who portray themselves as financial planners and just really just do investment management. So, but the numbers are growing and, and I feel um, very uh, optimistic that they will continue to get better. Well, and, and break that down a little bit then for our, for our listeners who didn't understand that that distinction between financial planning and investment management. Yep. So with investment management, that's just what it is, is people say, here, let me manage your money and I will invest it in the market and bonds or hedge funds or cryptocurrency or whatever and try to make you more money. That's investment management. Financial planning is where you understand a person's financial needs and goals and you go through their cash flow their you know so what they're spending how much they're saving make certain that they're um, saving enough so that eventually they'll have financial independence and also go through their estate plan to make sure that they they've done everything smartly there especially you know people think about estate planning as dying but it's in what we're going to talk about today it's more important to make certain if you become incapacitated, which is, you know, a situation many people go through before they die. And so making certain the estate plan is in place, insurance planning, making making certain people aren't overinsured and underinsured or underinsured. And you can do insurance planning without selling insurance and act as the client's advocate to help them find the appropriate insurance. And then college planning, you know, so so there's just way more to it. Tax planning, I almost forgot. That's so huge. People are so worried about making money on investments and 
so many are stupid about how much they lose on taxes. And so just doing good tax planning. So a good comprehensive planner looks at all of that and helps the client put it in perspective with what are their goals and, and what is it that brings satisfaction to them. And what, one more part, which I'm, I hope to see in financial planning happen to more of me being a doctor, especially an emergency room doctor, I saw people like die way too soon or get hit with some serious illness. And all of a sudden their life has changed. And I think we too, spend too much time focusing on uncertain futures when we need to spend more time planning for now and making certain that people are happy now and that they have all their ducks in a row for when think bad things happen now and thinking about the future. But I think we need to flip how much time we spend on each on the on its head and learn more about life satisfaction now and how to um, put your financial resources behind that goal. Yeah, so much of that that I love. And and if that hopefully that gives everybody the picture of this holistic type planning that you're talking about that is so much different from just investment management. Uh, and we'll, we promised that we wouldn't talk about taxes for Rachel. So we're not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> I, so love this. I appreciate that you brought thing, that up. But but I had to promise her. It's tax-free Friday. We're not, we're not doing <laughs> that today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Uh, but I love that, especially the your your last uh, point there about planning for you know, helping people to sort of plan for now, because you do hear a lot of like, you know, how do I know if I'm going to have enough money for whatever? And it's always some future event. Mm -hmm. And it's always struck me as a very strange way to view things like, well, if and when I get to this point, then I'll be able to do whatever it is, you know, whatever somebody's bucket list happens to be. And that uh, is hopeful thinking um, because you nobody really knows how things are going to go, as you're pointing out. Correct. Well, one of the things that you pointed out that uh, I thought would be interesting to talk about, although it's a little bit of a depressing topic, so apologies to anybody, but it's an important one, which ha happens to do with incapacity planning and in particular kind of the planning around exploitation uh, because it's so prevalent. And depending on the statistics that you agree with or, or believe, the level of of say, financial loss through financial exploitation of elderly people in the country is somewhere, and this is a big, big range, it's somewhere in the, say, three to about $37 billion a year range. Again, it depends on which studies you believe, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really matter where it falls in that range. That's an enormous amount of loss, and we certainly see it from time to time in our practice, and it's heartrending. And so we thought we'd talk with you about it because I know that's that's a bit of a uh, uh, important topic for you as well. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it, it is a huge issue. And I think we're going those numbers are probably actually understated given the current state of technology and how easy it is to rip people off because of technology. And and we see it all the time, the number of scams that people get exposed to, and they're just escalating. And you have to be really smart and have your guard up to be prepared for those. And, you know, the, the latest, and like you said, there's the statistics are all over the board. You know, it's supposedly one in nine people, elderly people have some sort of abuse, whether it's financial or physical abuse. And that's, that's in one year, you know, in any one year. And that's huge. And, you know, one in 20 supposedly have financial um, abuse, but it's grossly underreported. Another study showed that like only one in 44 actually get reported. So the numbers are huge. People get em embarrassed because 
they were taken advantage of and it made them feel like they were stupid or, you know, just, and it's sad. And so, so there's so much unreported fraud and abuse out there. So we got to get people ready and, and prepare them to reduce this from happening. I think a good place to start too, and I know, you know, uh, looking at financial exploitation, elderly abuse, it's very state specific, right? Each laws or each state is going to have their own laws. Mm -hmm. But can you kind of give us a general overview, Carolyn, on exactly what are the signs of financial exploitation and elderly abuse? Um, well, I want to talk a little bit uh, along those lines about who's most at risk. You know, people think about dementia, right? And we have a lot of people with dementia in this country. But something that's really not talked about a lot is just basic mild cognitive impairment. And what that is, is you don't have dementia, but you just your your brain flexibility is not what it used to be. And so a significant part of the population, it's like 12 to 18 percent have mild cognitive impairment. Around 5 to 15 percent of those every year go on to develop dementia, but 50 percent stay stable and never progress to dementia. But so you have this large group of elderly people who and we're talking when I say elderly, which is going to you know, I'll hit there soon people over 60 to 65 and it, that have um, what I call a, a lack of ability to figure out what's right and what's wrong sometimes. And, you know, our first thing to go is our ability to manage complicated financial decisions. And so and that's what makes it really hard for people when they're when they're presented with products. So you talk about what are the different types of financial fraud. You have, you know, of course, the scamsters, the, the grandma, um, my, your, your niece is in jail and we, in another country and we need to get her out. It's amazing how many people fall for things like that or the romance scams. You know, and in reality, though, 90% of fraud and abuse for, is actually from people close to us. So family members, um, caretakers, other other people that you actually know, but the biggest losses actually come from the strangers. So yeah, so you got to be ready for both of those. And so so as far as strangers, you know, so many scams out there, the social security scams. I, I swear, clients call every other day saying they're going to stop my social security, and not that often, but but it's those calls are so so commonplace now. And it's so easy to to make somebody react quickly from fear. And so that's that's a, a, a hard thing to teach somebody. As soon as you get a call like that, don't react. Just get information, ask lots of questions and don't give any information. And so so those are like the ones you don't know. The ones you do know are, oh gosh, commonly abuse of power of attorney documents, abuse of joint ownership of accounts. And, you know, the sad thing you get into with families is you have families who are taking care of their elderly parents and they feel owed something and which they probably are. And if families set things up correctly, then it's all transparent and, and nobody has to start saying, well, you know, mom needs to pay my rent because I'm helping her out. And so you're sneaking that money out, which is just wrong. And so, you know, it's 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 so people rationalize abuse and and it's really sad. And that's actually probably the more common thing 
of, of how they do that. So I've given you lots of examples, but there are about 50 out there. So do you want, do you want the list or <laughs> the, the National Council on Aging actually has a great list and as does the Department of Justice. Department of Justice has a, a great um, roadmap. If you feel like you've been taken advantage of, you, you can like click on their little roadmap of how, where do I get help and how do I report this? Now, I think you brought up a lot of really great points in there, and, and I, I completely agree with you. I So I, prior to going to law school, I worked at an in-home care agency. Oh, wow. And, so, and I was on the management side, and so we saw it all the time. And it was exactly like you were saying, you see it on the stranger side where you've got the scams. And right as, as a young adult now, you know, I get the call about, you know, some person needing money in some country. I'm just like, okay, like who could ever fall for this? But mm -hmm. like you said, when you might be in a compromised state or you've got your social security payments on the line, you really are reacting in fear. And then on the flip side, we see it so much on the family side. And we um, particularly, you could see it with, with caregivers because you, you have this relationship with an individual, you're there for 12 hours a day. If you're doing a 12 hour shift, you see them consistently, you really start to trust and have this really great, almost familial relationship. And then it kind of takes off from there. And while both parties may not feel like it's, it's, they're not doing anything wrong, but, oh, here, let me give you an extra $5,000 bonus check. And now this is happening consistently. You start to see these signs and you see it, it really is exploitation. And so I, I agree with you. It's, it's, there's a whole array of how it can happen. It's really just mm -hmm. trying to understand what those signs are and being able to have someone that you can go to to talk about and can help you kind of get out of that situation if you're in it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I do, I'd love to get into, the problem is, is that people wait until it's too late to address the situation. And uh, I, for gosh, 15 years now, I've been educating advisors on how to prepare well in advance so that people never even have to get to that part of exploitation or abuse. And, and so this planning actually needs to start when people are in their 50s and 60s and they don't realize, wow, that soon. So I'm, I'm, whenever you guys want to start riffing on that, I'm happy to take off. Oh, well, you're, you're preaching to the choir because we yeah. agree 100%. In fact, when we do a lot of uh, estate planning work and it doesn't matter how rich the clients are. Most of the time, the estate planning work looks relatively similar on the basic document side of things. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I try to emphasize with clients as much as humanly possible is that the real value of most of the work that we're doing is in capacity planning because they will be around for it. Everything else, by definition, they'll be dead and gone. They won't care. But incapacity planning, they will be there and the statistics are so high that they will fall into one of these categories that it's an almost certain outcome that we will need to use those documents to protect them. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot, like Rachel was mentioning, we see a lot of uh, exploit. Well, not I shouldn't say a lot because that makes it sound like it's all the clients, but frequently enough that it's concerning of uh, family members or caregivers who try to gain some advantage from an elderly person. And it usually comes in a bit of a, it's sort of a creeping fashion. And at, to your point, the justifications sort of follow the creeping fashion. It's the, well, you know, I'm here all the time taking care of them. Therefore, is it really such a bad thing that I let them know that I need to buy a car? I want to buy a car for my kid. And 
they just so happen to agree that they want to give me this gift to pay for the car or to pay for the tuition or pay for something. And, you know, the family members, they're not here, notwithstanding the fact that they live in a completely different state and they can't be there every day. And this person is being paid to be there every day. You know, these sorts, the justifications sort of follow the activities and it's small little cuts. And then on top of that, usually the justification that we hear is, well, but he or she wanted, we talked about it and they said they wanted to give me this money. And from our perspective, and certainly from the legal standard perspective in our state, whether they wanted to give the money is actually irrelevant. It's no less exploitation whether they wanted to or not. The exploitation is leveraging that power dynamic, that relationship. And that's the exploitation. Exactly. Yeah. Elderly people, they're so afraid of losing their caregivers. And especially now with COVID, it's hard to get good caregivers. And so it gives the caretakers a one up on being able to exploit the people they're taking care of. And so this is why it's so important in advance of ever getting in this situation that people create transparency with multiple people and clear agreements and expectations about what people are going to receive. So how so then sort of drilling that down to to your clients Carolyn, how do you coach them through that process? Well, so the first part is financial transparency. And the the problem is a lot of older people, they just haven't shared what they have and what they're doing with their children or other important professionals. And and that's where things get into trouble. Nobody knows what the what people are doing. And so the first thing that we encourage is is transparency across the board to everybody that could be involved. I mean, sometimes you have a problem child that you don't want to be transparent with, but but making certain that if you if you don't have enough children or you don't or you don't have any children, you create a community that's going to help take care of you. So that may involve your estate planner, your financial planner, your accountant, and in in some states you have legal fiduciaries that you can have help you. But always have more than one person involved. I say it takes three legs for a stool to stand. And the more people that you have that can look in on the situation, the less chance it gives somebody to exploit because they just know everybody knows everything that's happening. So so that's the first part. And then creating agreements around who is going to do what. And and we find that the best situations are when people split the responsibilities. And so it may be like one person is taking care of helping manage the bills. And then another person is actually helping manage the investments and they all know how much money is coming from investments to pay the bills. And and that reduces, again, the chance that somebody's going to take advantage of the situation. And also, you know, creating agreements about who are going who's going to be paid. So you guys talked about caregivers. Well, you know, caregivers can be the paid type, but more often than not, it's family caregivers that you have. And they're not paid and nobody ever has a conversation about how much that person is giving up to care for their loved one. And they may be willing to do it, but in reality, it does create resentment and issues within family members if there's one or two people in charge and then everybody else is looking in from the outside, but they're not really doing anything to help. So we actually create paid agreements. 
and expectations and you actually put in those agreements what people will receive or not receive like you're not gonna this is what you're getting nothing else there will be no additional gifts and you could actually do that with paid caregiver agreements so when you create those and and we don't create it's not legal documents we, we call them friendly engagement standards of here's what you're expected to do and what you're going to get in return for that and, and so just keeping that transparency and clarity is, is paramount. And then the last thing that's most important that's so underutilized is simplification. So many people have all these, they'll have multiple 401ks, IRAs, so many things they don't even know where they are. And our goal is to get people into one brokerage account, one Roth, one IRA, one uh, checking, one savings account. We minimize how much is kept in checking your savings because that's that's where the money's going to come from first. And if all of a sudden an elder person gets a request to for a lot of money, they have to like let us know. So it allows our intended to go up. Where is this money going to? Those are such great little nuggets in there that you just talked about. And I feel like Brent and I see this all the time, and I, it's really a generational um, difference. I think, you know, as as younger estate planning attorneys, I know like, I've got my my investment account, I've got my checking and savings account, and my one bank. We've got a joint account with my husband. That's that's it. We're keeping it super simple. My 401k, mm-hmm. and then you see a lot of our clients. And to your point, we've got clients with four or five different checking and savings accounts, all at different banks. There's different investment accounts and their, their assets are completely spread across the board and they don't talk about finances. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time we, we are so surprised to hear some of our clients when they get to a certain point and we hear their assets and we're like, why haven't you ever told us about this? We, we definitely need to do some more additional planning. And so it's really counseling your clients and really trying to get them to open up. And I've even been doing this with, with family members who are starting to get into that stage of planning that let's try and simplify this. You need to let people know because when the day happens, when you do pass away and whoever is going to be stepping up and looking at your documents and trying to take over, you want it to be as simple as possible for them mm-hmm. as well. And if they have to search through 10 different accounts and try and get a hold and get uh, become uh, uh, have, have management over all these accounts, it's going to be a really hard, long process. And so simplifying it, making it transparent, listing it all out, that's going to be the easiest way to really let the next generation be able to help take over for you. No, you're exactly right. It's very interesting. I had a, a client whose parent was in their 90s and the and that he was a do it yourself for former chemical engineer, you know, the 90 year old was and he had been a stock picker and he was actually a buy and holder. And so son and, and son was his executor son knew he had a lot of stuff, just had no idea what or where it was. And um, and he had done all the planning with an estate attorney and created a trust. And and so his son convinced him to let me look at everything just to make sure all the, um, you know, T's were crossed and I's dotted. And this man had about 30 stock certificates in a lockbox. He had um, things were that were individual holdings at holding companies. He in his. And he had a large, very large IRA. He left his IRA to his sons and in his trust, he left to a bunch of charities. And you guys see, you t- you said not talk about tax today. 
um, that, you know, and so in Florida, you know, probate can be very, very painful if you have an estate over 75,000, his estate was $6 million. And when, when I added everything up, and so we ended up moving all those individual stocks into a brokerage account. And then we, you know, cleaned up all the beneficiaries and we re had him redo his trust. The trust went to the son, the IRAs went to charity. And, you know, we calculated, we saved at least $600,000 in income taxes on the, you know, just that switch. But gosh, probably, you know, estate planning attorneys would be sad because they didn't make a lot of money off of that estate now. But man, that would have been a probate that would have easily been $100,000 um, in Florida. So, you know, people don't understand the beauty of simplification. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be elaborate to to create a lot of important controls. And, and oftentimes with our clients, it's utilizing a trust as the ultimate owner. And then like you were pointing out, which I think is brilliant and, and exactly the right way to handle it. It doesn't mean that you have to strip back every uh, every piece of financial independence for the elderly person. So they can still have a checking account that they can write checks on. It's just that checking account is not going to be funded with the $3 million. Right. It's going to be funded with maybe some tens of thousands of dollars, and it's not going to be tied to an account with millions of dollars in it for overdraft protection. You know, you're going to have some, so they have some flexibility day to day where they can, they can buy things and they maybe could make small gifts, but it's, not going to allow them to be exploited in a way that would actually be detrimental to them. Yeah. If if that level of money, of course, wouldn't be detrimental to them. But and you have to figure out what is that number. And then exactly you can right. you can build a plan, I think, where you have somebody who really suffers from a lot of cognitive impairments, like you were pointing out, but they can still maintain a, a pretty high level of financial independence. Right. You bring up a great point that can't be stressed enough. Too many people think of um, taking away financial independence is like this all, you know, offer on switch. And for everybody, it really does need to be gradual. Even people with mild cognitive impairment and early dementia can spend money and write checks. It's just that you have to have um, bigger barriers to prevent them from being exploited. And so, so you, that's why it should be a gradual plan. So, we, which brings back who are their financial surrogates going to be? And when do you start to involve them? And, and we actually create, it's a, it's a stepwise process of just having that the financial surrogate looking in at first. And then as things progress, then have them start either assisting writing the bills, maybe not. And it and every person's different. Some elderly people just say, oh, I'm so happy I don't have to do it anymore. And some it's very important to their sense of well-being and sense of control. And so so you have to you, you know massage the process for that personality. And then eventually the person takes over again, making certain that you have transparency with multiple people so that there doesn't become, I call this ooze of, of uh, irresponsibility towards managing that person's assets. Yep, exactly. And and depending on the, the nature of the complexity of the assets, then there may be other layers. Uh, so oftentimes we'll use some some form of kind of family company or family holding company 
It's not because we're trying to be over elaborate. It's because oftentimes those those layers do two things. Number one, when somebody dies, it makes it really easy to divvy up the assets. So you don't end up with a $100,000 uh, probate or trust administration, like you were pointing out, which can happen right. when there's a lot of complicated work that has to be done. And number two, so that there's another layer of control. So the thing that maybe the now cognitively impaired person has access to is an interest in a company. It's not cash mm -hmm. and it's not something that can be liquidated. And it's not something that can be really given away because there are transfer controls on those entities. And so depending on the complexity of the client, then we try to match up the plan again with an eye towards the most important part of it is this incapacity planning. And everybody's different. Everybody's yep. completely different. And you, there's no one size fits all situation. Yep. Thank goodness. that I mean, you know, people talk about artificial intelligence replacing um, attorneys and financial planners, and that will never happen. It's, uh, you know, th there's too much emo emotion in, in individual circumstances that get involved for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, can I ask you then, um, how do you go about then educating the family on these sorts of preparations? Because it's one thing to educate the client, but then to educate the family is really that's the rubber hitting the road part of it. Yeah. And this is where comprehensive financial planning and being holistic really matter. Part of our process in our practice is we know all the family members, whether they're clients or not, and we make it a point to um, talk to them at some point. And especially when we're starting that, we call it aging planning. And, and long again, long before somebody even has a hint of an issue, we have a process where we say it's time to start thinking about what happens if you become incapacitated. And and of course, we always, I tell people, you can become incapacitated when you're 20, 30, 40. And so you need to always have your ducks in a row for that situation. But in reality, the more common situation is going to be that that person is aging. And so at that point, that's when we say, you know, if we haven't met the, the financial surrogates or the children, it's like, I think it's time for us to have a, a transparency conversation and and start to explain what we're what we're doing and why. And you may or may not want to share all the numbers, but you at least want to share where everything is and how it's going to work and what they're going to do. And then introducing them to us so so that when if something bad happens and we are, we actually have a letter of authorization for all of our clients to call their surrogate and, and in that letter it says if i'm worried about you and and i want to talk to your family member you give me permission to do that i will tell you first but if you refuse i still get to call that person if i'm worried and that letter it just is protective across the board for both the client for us and for the people we're going to call. And so so having that and but haven't already met them when when things do happen, it's like there's less hesitation for picking up the phone. If they're worried about their mom or dad, then they know to call us. Likewise, if we're worried, we call them. And it's very interesting. It, it gives this big sense of relief to the entire family when they know these processes are already in place. It's funny because I get I'll get asked oftentimes when we're signing documents, estate planning documents for clients, they'll look at me and they'll say, so if something happens to me, do they call you? Like they're not sure mm -hmm. if their family is supposed to call me. I'm like, yeah, of course they call me and then I'll know what to do. And yeah. I think 
that's so important to having this sort of teaming exercise so everybody knows what you do because the reality is for the family members, they've never been through this situation. Yep. So if something happens, they actually don't know who to talk to and what to do. And so relieving that stress goes a long, long way. Well, you bring up a really good point that, that you know, to me, everybody should work as a team, the accountant, the attorney, the insurance agents, the financial planner. I've often thought, you know, invest again, we already talked about the difference between an investment manager and a financial planner. To me, a financial planner is all very much like a family physician. They know a lot about every. Uh, they know, I'd say, ninety percent of everything, and then they know when they need to get help. And so, to me, financial planners should not be doing estate documents. They, you know, it, it it's or they should not be trying to figure out a complicated insurance situation. That's when you get the specialist on board, and so. Some attorneys and some uh, some other like accountants or whatever, they're very um, they don't like working with the other advisors. They're very protective of their turf. And to me, that's just not a good relationship. And so the way we kind of have it is that because we're holistic family physicians in the finance, then the family knows call us. You guys tend to charge hourly, you know, so that it's more expensive to call you. So they call us. And then we call you and, you know, when the bad, when, when the poop hits the fan, we get everybody involved. So everybody's got to figure out their, how they work together. But I always encourage estate planning attorneys. It's like, you know, work with your financial planners and the financial planners work with the estate attorneys. And that just is much better for clients across the board. Absolutely. Completely agree. I, I love it when we have big meetings for clients like that, where we've got the financial advisor, we've got the CPA, we've got the investment uh, manager on the phone, everyone's together. And that really shows that it is a comprehensive plan. Like you right. said, every, we all have our own specialties. We each have our own little nuggets that we can contribute that the other might not have thought of. And so it's really important to get the whole team on board. So you have this plan that really just coincides with one another. And then going forward, it's just so much easier for the client. Yeah, and the one thing I want to bring up, though, that is so important that it's underdone and that the attorneys love us for this. So the, the attorneys go to the document. We actually, the, they do the documents. We actually go to the signing of all the documents and we fill out all the beneficiary forms, all everything that needs to be done. We get it done and we take it to the signing so everything's done at once. And it's so beautiful because too often people go to the attorney and the attorney says, oh, you need to do all this, but they don't do it. And the financial advisor doesn't check that it's been done. And so it's so important to, to you know, tie the bow on everything to make sure it's done. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's a there's a great value in getting everybody involved because then you also get all of the best ideas involved. Yep, and, you know, we've, Rachel and I have been in a lot of those meetings where, you know, we might make a suggestion and then usually the comment after the suggestion is what does everybody think? Yep. What, what other ideas do we have? Cause oftentimes the best idea doesn't come from one person. It's a collective effort and whatever the good idea is, that's what we're searching for. Exactly. And it's important that, that to me, that's where financial planners can add value if they're comprehensive, holistic planners of they really know the client's values and goals and just making sure that everybody on the team agrees 
that what's being done is congruent with the client's values and goals. Because I know sometimes um, insurance agents and every accountants, especially, or they they get so excited about some esoteric planning thing, and the client has no desire to add complication to their life. And so, yes, maybe it'll be prettier, but the client, you know, and when it and if somebody's standing up and said, well this doesn't really fit their personality. And, you know, so that's why it's so good for everybody to know everybody well, to stand up for that. Mm-hmm. Well, Carolyn, we could chop this up with you pretty much all day long, but yeah. uh, we want to be respectful of your time as well. So thank you very much for doing this. If people are trying to reach you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, my my speaking website is carolynmcclanahan.com. So that's, that's easy. Um, my financial planning um, firm is lifeplanningpartners.com. We're not taking new clients, so we're not. Um, so that's that's always nice for people here. It's like, well, gosh, she's really objective. They don't have to worry about taking new clients. <laughs> um, and so, so that's the best way to find me. And Excellent. I'm on Twitter at Carolyn MCC. I love Twitter, so always sharing stuff there. Perfect. Well, we'll we'll include, of course, all of the the contact particulars in the show notes as well. And we just cannot thank you enough for taking time to to be with us. Thank you again. My pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. uh, Subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thank you.